you're never too old and it doesn't matter what's happened before. You still have all this life left. So why are we wasting it by being so caught up in all of the minutia of the garbage? Let's let's start taking the garbage out and leaving it in the dump where it belongs and stop carrying it because we don't have to carry that weight for the rest of our life. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted unworthy and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest, Robin Cote, is a multi-talented individual with a diverse background in media. From a young age, she immersed herself in film, radio, television, and the music industry. Despite enduring significant personal losses and facing various forms of abuse, Robin emerged as a survivor and an advocate for victims. As a radio and show business personality, author, transformational coach, and motivational speaker, she brings a no-nonsense perspective to all that she does. Through her personal journey documented in her book, Victim No More, Robin invites others to embrace self-worth, accountability, and a better life. With her infectious smile and unfiltered honesty, she is a respected member of the independent film and music community, a dedicated mother, and a living kidney donor. Robin's impact extends beyond her own experiences as she shares her wisdom and truth on her podcast, Get Real with Robin. In this powerful episode, Robin joins me as we discuss empowerment through self-expression and speaking out. We also discuss how others who have experienced trauma support a healing journey and break through the patterns of pain and victimhood. And it's all right here, right now, in the Trauma Hiders Club. So, Robin, tell us who you were when you were five. That's a hard thing to remember. Okay, I'm going to help you. Okay. Like, imagine that we have live streaming video. Okay. Okay, and we're watching you. And you're five, and you're doing what you love. What would we see you doing? I would imagine I'd be playing with my Barbie dolls or maybe riding my big wheel outside. But, yeah, you know, I... I don't have a lot of recall of that age. There's, you know, when you go through a lot of stuff in your life, you kind of have some memories that are very vivid, mm-hmm. but then there's some that aren't. So I mean, my first memory is the age of three. But again, it's based on trauma because I got mm-hmm. stuck by a wasp. <laughs> so, oh. 
it's a memory that sticks with me, but five is kind of somewhere in there where I have no recall of it. But I would imagine that's what I was doing, was playing with Barbie dolls or driving the big wheel. Yeah. Gosh, I remember a big wheel. I didn't have one. I'm a third kid. Um, oh, no. You didn't even yeah. get one handed down? No, didn't even oh, get one handed sucks. down because they, I think they came out probably right around when I was five. And we had, I don't know, uh, the message was probably like, we have enough shit. We don't need more. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like bicycles, yeah. tricycles. Right. And big wheels. You, you take your pick, whichever one. Yeah. But I had friends who had them. Those were fun to ride. I totally forgot about a big wheel until just now. And they're plastic pieces of junk if you really look at it, you know. They it's, are. But they were like the coolest toy on the block. If you had one, you were like the bomb, you know. You were. Totally cool. Yeah. You're riding your big wheel. You're playing with your Barbies. Who would we see you being? Like freedom, joy, sparkly, dark, serious, pensive. At the age of five, I would have probably been a happy-go-lucky kid. Not really, you know, not having a care in the world, just being lost in my toys. And, and you know, I did steal my brother's G.I. Joe a couple of times because I didn't like Ken. Ken wasn't an ideal guy for Barbie. She had to have G.I. Joe. So I would steal my brother's G.I. Joe from time to time just to play. But at that age, I, I think everything was still pretty even keel with me as far as being a happy-go-lucky little kid. Yeah, yeah. Same with me. The reason why I tend to focus and this is something that, like I do in coaching um and I've I imagine I've done on the podcast before the reason why I go to 5 is 5 is who we really are before we had to follow the rules like once you go to school you have to follow the rules in kindergarten you're allowed to pretty much be who you are for a bit but once we like first grade we're 6 and we have to start following the rules which are there to diminish our essence to, we start to morph and that universe starts to demand that we be morphed into what fits. So my question around five is purposeful because I have an assertion that who you were at five, who I was at five is who we truly are. Right. Right. Today. And I'm going to tell you a secret about me. Who I was at five is the person I have been working for so long in my life to be. Yeah, yeah. that that inner child stays with you, and right. you know the the softness and the the vulnerability of a child, and just the we're so untouched as a child at, at the age of five, at least most of us. And it's yeah. it's a beautiful thing when you actually make that full circle around to seeing the inner child as an adult and understanding when the processes begin changing. And as you said, the roles get set in place. And even in, in my case, it wasn't long after that, that things really took a turn. And I yeah. didn't know for many years that that was going on. Right, right. We don't, we don't know. Right. Right. We, we don't know until we have the words or some information that tells us what we're experiencing is fucked up. Yeah. wrong. We're supposed to trust the adults in our life. Right. We're supposed to trust our mama bear, our daddy bear. But, you know, when it's them that commit the wrongdoings against you, I mean, how do you even establish what trust is as a child? You don't know because it's so skewed. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, we're going to get into that. I want to go back for a moment before we do. Imagine 
you know how like you go to somebody's house or you see a like the ideal house in a movie or cartoon or whatever and there's a porch and maybe some rocking chairs outside and a sign that says things like home sweet home right like there's mm-hmm. that etched sort of sign what would the sign on your house say enter with caution mm, got it and so imagine we have we've entered with caution but we've walked through the door and there's music playing whether there typically was or not doesn't matter What would the song be that would just fit the vibe? Well, if we're going back that far, we're looking at something that's, I mean, this is going to sound weird because I can't really think of the song or the vibe. But back then, since my father was a little older, it was always Lawrence Welk on the TV. Mm. So anything that, you know, those folks did on the TV show, it's kind of that old music that is just reminisce when I when I think of going back through that house and being in there as a child. That's what I heard was some of that older type music from the Lawrence Welk show. Yeah, that was such a weird show, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a variety entertainment show. But you know, when you're a kid, and you've got an older father who's listening to it, it just doesn't it doesn't work for you in the 70s. You're You're thinking of other music. I mean, I had a school bus driver that was just the bomb. She would play music on the radio for us. So I heard a lot of 70s music that I never got to hear in the house because I hold I heard older stuff that was just the I mean, the accordion. I I dislike the sound of an accordion. I don't care. I just don't like yeah. it. Because my father even played it. You know, my father played accordion a lot, accordion and harmonica. And I that accordion just anytime I hear it, ugh, it just mm. sends these gross vibes through me. And it just reminds me of that. In Lawrence Welk, they always had someone on there with an accordion. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they had, I don't know, everybody always appeared to be like 75, whatever I thought 75 was. And by the way, I think if we look today, they probably are 25. But yeah, those those very chiffonny dresses and (laughs) Stepford wives. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I get the music that truly was playing. So let's say we have a movie of your life, right? There's a movie in it. The movie has a soundtrack. So you get to determine what the music is. What would you choose not to change the mood or make you happier because it's your favorite song, but because it actually fit and we get to understand the setting, like you're setting the story. What would that, what would that sound like? Um, There's a song by, um, and one of my former friends, he passed away a few years ago from suicide, but he, he was in a big name band called Lincoln Park. Mm-hmm. And the song is called Numb. Mm. So when I when I hear that song, it kind of represented a lot of what I felt in that house. Mm-hmm. Just I've become so numb, you know, just just that feeling. And that's that to me was a very powerful song to represent i mean if we're talking about something that's more current that could represent it that's a that's a good thing just being numb even go back to even pink floyd comfortably numb you know just you're you're just going through the motions because that's what's expected of you to be there and not be defiant you know not be able to speak up just have to be silent and be the child and listen to what they tell you but it was always numb it just felt numb it didn't feel like a family. It just it never did. Did it feel like you didn't belong or did it feel like no one belonged? 
I wasn't so concerned with what they felt, mm-hmm. but um, I, from a certain age, I always felt like I was an orphan. And for several years, it was getting to that point. I just didn't feel like I fit in. Mm-hmm. It, it it was like, why? The question was always, why am I here? Why did you have me? Why is my existence in this family what it is? Because I always just, you know, from... Uh, Several years later, when things started happening, I realized at the age of eight, I felt like I was an orphan. And it just yeah. it just catapulted for many years, even in, into being a teenager. I always felt like I just did not belong in this family, that for some reason I was put here. And I couldn't explain it at the time, because how would a child know? Right, right. We don't. We figure this is our family. And, you know, my brother and I, we have a fractured relationship. And we've always had a fractured relationship since we were children. We've never really bonded. And it never made sense because my brother was a little over a year older than me. And, you know, every girl wants an older brother to protect her. And I never had that. Even from, it's there's only one time where he ever jumped in to protect me. And we were young and somebody, a guy had hit my legs with a car when we were on a hayride. And he jumped in to go after the guy. And that's the only time he ever did. But we were never, I mean, I see pictures of us, you know, doing the kid embrace, but I have no recall of us ever telling each other that we love each other, that we were close when we were growing up. So for me, I always felt like I was not a part of this family. Mm. As uncommon as it sounds for people like us, for people who are in the Trauma Hiders Club, it's a consistent report that, yeah, I felt like I didn't belong in this family. One of the things that you shared with me when we spoke the first time to get to know each other is that you knew at a young age you wanted to help people. And was it that young? Like when the shit went down? I was like 10 years old. And um, I remember we took a a family trip up to the Grand Canyon. I think, I don't remember if somebody was in town and we took them up there, but I ran across um, a Native American lady, really sweet lady. And I was just talking to her and I told her I had weird feelings about things. And she told me, she goes, um, you're going to grow up to be a teacher. Hmm. And and I told her, I said, oh, you mean like a teacher in classrooms with other kids? That'd be cool. And she said, no, she goes, it goes far deeper than that. And you may not understand it right now. But when you hmm. get a little older, you're going to be able to use your voice to stand up hmm. and speak and help people and teach because your strength, I see it in you right now. I mean, telling this to a 10-year-old girl, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I don't know. She was really sweet. So I listened to her talk and she gave me a nice little bracelet, but I didn't really grasp what she was talking about. But having gone through all of that stuff, the trials and tribulations, and then realizing that's what she was talking about. She knew things before I even did. And you know, that's kind of the philosophy I've lived by. If if we go through this, a lot of us don't make it out the other side. You know, yeah. a lot of us allow life to just destroy us and take its toll. We beat our bodies up. We beat our mental health up. Things happen. We take our lives. We drink ourselves to death. We do things that physically cause harm. But for those of us who make it to the other side, we always look at it. Well, what's the purpose in this? If If we survive this, what is the purpose in this? Why did we go through all this? And that has really taught me that 
you know, I've used my voice for a living for 35 years. So why should I shut up now? Especially I've, I've grown so comfortable being open and honest about it. So why not use those tools to help other people? And mm. you know, as well as I do with your coaching, you can only give somebody so much information if they're not willing to sit down and, and peel the layers back and go after it and attack it head on, then that's there's only so much we can do. We can give them the tools, we can give them the hand up, but they have to be willing to to do the work as well. And, you know, I learned for a long time, I tried to be a coach and I sucked at it. You know, I was really terrible because I'm straightforward and I just would get very upset because I didn't see these people really wanting to do any work. They just wanted the hand out. Mm. instead of the hand up. And I'm like, well, I can't do the work for you. I'm sitting here with you for hours on end trying to help you. And of course, at this point, I'm not even charging for this. I'm doing this out of the goodness of my heart because I'm so tired of people being hurt and and you know, you try to help them. And it's like, you're just not good at this, Robin. You've got to find a different way to do it. So that's why I just, I write, I blog mm. things out because that's my sanctuary. That's how I I get rid of the verbal diarrhea junk that's holding yeah. me back. And then I'm able to put it in words to where other people will read it and they see themselves in it. And that's a gift that I was given from God knows where, you know, maybe, maybe whoever, <laughs> you know, whoever's piping it through me, but the ability to be able to be so honest and raw about things, it has not only helped me heal, but it it's, it's a beautiful gift to be able to share that with other people and just let them know, hey, you know what? You don't have to stay in the dark forever. You can get out. We're never too old. You know, I have I have people in their 60s right now that are going through their transformations. And to me, it's just beautiful because it shows that you're never too old and it doesn't matter what's happened before. You still have all this life left. So why are we wasting it by being so caught up in all of the minutia of the garbage. Let's let's start taking the garbage out and leaving it in the dump where it belongs and stop carrying it because we don't have to carry that weight for the rest of our life. Hell yes. So you started young. You started young. In, was it in radio and television? Oh yeah. I started in radio when I was 11. And so what were you doing? I was interning at a radio station. I was the um, elementary school correspondent. And I happened to just go to school across the street from a radio station. And a bunch of people were in the parking lot making noise. So I always went to school early because I was one of those bookworm kids and didn't really care about the home life. So, you know, just one day they were making noise and I walked across the street and walked right up to the guy and he stuck a microphone in my face and the rest was history. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's so cool. And were you, when it came to tell, did you do work in television? I did. I worked for several TV stations for a number of years, worked for PBS, did some stuff behind the scenes, never really was on camera because I, mm. I like more of the background stuff. And um, I worked for a couple of TV shows as a promotions director, promoting talent and did audio engineering for the TV shows. And then again, promotions to go out in public and let everybody know, hey, we're filming a TV show. If you got talent, you want to come on the show. If you... If you want to be in the audience, you're welcome to come to the show. We cater the event and stuff like that. So I got involved in the the talent industry here as well and, the, and had musicians in, had actors, actresses, little kids doing dancing and all kinds of things. So I got into all of that because it was a good creative outlet for me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've always been a creative and it's just difficult 
when you have parents that won't give you the upper hand to do anything. We weren't allowed to do sports. We weren't allowed to do any type of, you know, I tried to go in for cheer. God only knows why. Because I was, I would, you know, I wasn't the in girl. I was the outcast. So mm. I would, I tried to do the palm dance stuff, but my father refused to to take us to after school activities, and our mother refused to learn how to drive. So it was all dependent on our father to do things. And I know that my brother has a lot of resentment because our father would not get him involved in sports and stuff like that. So. You know, anything that we did outside of school, we had to do on our own. If we had to walk 10 miles to go back to school to do it, that was on us. We, mm. you know, he, they would never let us get involved in, in stuff like that. So, you know, I I spent a lot of time in high school my last two years. And I don't know if I should say this, but it's the truth. I ditched a lot of my classes to hang out at radio stations in the morning shows and, you know, I I was a straight-A student, but then things took turns with me and emotional stuff and other things happened. And I ended up ditching some classes and became a, a failure at school, mm. and, you know, and having to drop out in my senior year, four months before graduation, uh, it was either drop out or be kicked out. So I dropped out and went straight to the library, studied for the GED and passed the class on my birthday. And, mm. you know, it was just... I don't know. There was so much stuff going on emotionally inside of me that I didn't understand. Yeah. And that was an escape for me being around. I was always drawn to older people. So a lot of these radio people were, you know, maybe five, six, some of them 10 years older than me, but they were, they became mentors to me, you know, hanging out with them and learning what they were doing and acquiring a skill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people think, oh, well, I can get behind the microphone and be on the radio. I can do what you do. And it's like, no, you can't. It's mm -hmm. not as easy as it sounds. It is 99% personality. And you have to be able to have a conversation with somebody who's on the other end of space. You, they, yes. you don't see them. You're behind four walls. And, you know, the general rule in radio is you always talk to that talk on the microphone like you're talking to one person. And I've always radios changed through the years. That's why I'm not in it anymore. I'm on a different end of it. But a lot of times back in the day, it to me, the listeners were everything. The people who called on the phones, the people who showed up to the stations that showed up to the events. I'm I'm like a musician. I don't think that I would ever have a job without you actually tuning in and listening or mm. coming out to the events and meeting us because that's what made the difference for me. It was all about people mm -hmm. and not being able to have a, a strong family life. Radio gave me that. It gave yeah. me, you know, from a very young age, it gave me family. And I'm mm -hmm. still still connected with so many of those beautiful mentors that that worked with me when I was a young girl. And it's a, it's a nice thing to know that, you know, 35, 40 years later, they're still here. And it may just be on Facebook now, but, you know, it's still really cool. It's still yeah. really awesome because I get the window into their life still. And now they're seeing me still doing what I'm doing with podcasts and video shows. And it's just a different way of life. But, you know, it's it's fulfilled me in ways that the lack of a family life has not. Mm -hmm. And what a great way to choose a family, even like even if the masses of people who are out there listening, you don't know who they are, but you right. can imagine, right? Yeah, you get to right. imagine how nice is that. So one of the things I know about you is to be a victim mm. is just not your choice, I think what we need to do is dig into 
what brought you to write like no victims? Like I'm not going to choose to be a victim, but there was a lot of shit that mm. came before you made that decision. So if you could share in a general sense or however you want to the path and sort of the landmines along the way that got you to understand about you that being a victim was not a powerful position. Well, I think for me, I'll just sum this part up in a nutshell and we can go back and visit the yeah. the timeline. But for me, the victim, the victimhood, I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my son at 17 and I'm grateful that I made that decision, even with the circumstances surrounding so much of my life at that point. And I say this often, if I did not have that child, I probably would not be here. I probably would have turned into a drug addicted person who sold my body, who didn't care, who just didn't give a shit about my daily life because I had parents that didn't. And all of all of the, th- the things that happened leading up to that kid being born, you know, I, I honestly say I would not be here mm. and I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't take on being a mom at 17, because life gave me no choice. When I made that decision to have that kid, it was like, get your shit together, figure it out. Mm-hmm. I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. We don't get instruction manuals. I had a shitty childhood. I didn't have any mentors to look up to. I didn't have guidance from either parent. I just existed in this household and was used for certain things to help others gain financial gain for themselves while they sacrificed me. And I'll get into that in a second. But the whole idea was, you know, I I was not going to let this child go through what I did. I was never going to let this child feel anything close to what I felt. Mm. And, you know, I ended up marrying his dad, but we were only together for three years married. And then, you know, all the hell broke loose with that one too. So I became a single parent at the age of 20. And my focus was on him. And it was him alone. It was the career. It was him. Guys were always a distant third. They didn't like that. But that was tough shit because my job as a parent is to make sure that kid has what he needs to become a successful adult. I never believed in raising a child. I believed in raising an adult. So I had it in my mind frame that as I raised him, I would make him a successful adult by understanding that he could still be a child and still live that part of his life and not have to worry about it. But I wanted to give him some survival skills. I wanted him to understand going into adulthood that yes, you can always come home and be in a relationship with mom. She's always going to have your back. But I didn't want a kid who was going to be so super you know, dependent upon me that he couldn't be successful once he got out of the home and decided to go live his life. And, you know, I never wanted him to feel worthless. Mm -hmm. I never wanted him to feel like he didn't belong. And the biggest thing is I never wanted that kid to feel like he wasn't loved. Mm -hmm. And growing up in my home, I never felt like I was loved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many things have been revealed to me that, you know, I didn't even understand until just in the last year and a half. But um, I didn't get I didn't understand why my mother and I never had a bond. It never made sense to me because before my brother and I ever came along, she had a child. She had a daughter that she claimed she was forced to give up for adoption. And Mm -hmm. you think 
when you have another child that you're going to do everything in your power, especially another daughter, to actually make up for the one that you were forced to give away when you were younger. But from day one, we've never had a bond. And I have tried for, you know, since I was young to force this bond. And I have tried over and over again. And to no avail, there's nothing there. I'm always the bad guy. I'm the piece of shit. I'm the whore. I am the sacrificial lamb. And finding out just recently in the past couple of years, um, being molested from the age of six till at least the age of eight. I don't know how much further it went on, but I knew it started at six. And I had faint memories of my father touching me certain ways. But the brain is such a beautiful thing for us human beings that it protects us until we're ready to deal with certain aspects of childhood trauma. Because man, I made so many mistakes through my life. i always was with the wrong people. I ended up in very emotionally toxic, abusive relationships, sexually abusive relationships. I gave myself away to too many people because they told me they cared about me. So that's how, you know, almost like this, oh, well, they care about me. It's okay to have sex with them. And then once you do, they blow you off and then you're nothing. You're just left there to deal with how you feel. I I was just used as a person and thrown away like a piece of trash. And that just beats the hell out of your self-esteem for so many years. And you don't understand. You think, oh, friends with benefits is great because you don't have to have that emotional bond and screw shit up with them falling in love with your kid and then breaking up and then your kid being destroyed. But, you know, to me, I've I've realized going into my adulthood now and all of this work that I've been doing that I did some very bad things to myself because I allowed so many people to take pieces of me and not really understanding what that meant. And, you know, even learning that I went to my mother when I was eight years old and expressed to her that I did not like what was going on, that he was touching me, he was doing things to me, and that it hurt me. And what I got in return is she grabbed my arm. She was in the kitchen. She grabbed my arm and she shook me and said, shut the fuck up. You're going to ruin everything for me. Keep your damn mouth shut. And, you know, I just found this out. It's been a block in my brain since since being a child and never understanding. But since that age of eight... I felt abandoned by her. Mm -hmm. And it was right about that time she started becoming a nanny and bringing kids into the house and taking care of everybody else's kids and giving them so much love and ignoring the hell out of me. And what's weird is I don't think my brother and I have the same memories. I don't think he even, I don't think he even realizes the shit that I went through. And I don't think he really cares But the idea that he sees a different mother than I do, and I've had to deal with her narcissistic nastiness and all of her rage taking things out on me through the years and basically calling me a whore to my face, telling me that. And and here's the kicker. And you and I have talked about this. I've been taking care of that witch for the last eight years. And I, I even had to take care of my father the last few years of his life. And that is not an easy thing to do when you start finding out shit that these two people who were given a child to raise because children are a gift to us. And if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing with these kids, you know, there's going to be some hell to pay. And I've spent my entire life beating the hell out of myself, making so many mistakes, not understanding what self-love and self-esteem is, that it's taken a long time for me to get it. And, you know, terrible marriages just 
trying to make sense of things. Um, the best marriage I had was the man who died in 2001 of cancer. We were only married seven months and together for less than two years. I was given a taste of something beautiful and it was taken away from me, of course, because again, it's another life lesson, but it people come to us for a reason. And, you know, with him, he showed me what real love was. And just to know that it could exist for me, you know, I tried to understand that, but I still wasn't in the vein of loving myself enough. And I still drew negative energy to me, another toxic relationship. And when you don't have a support system and you're trying to do this on your own, it's difficult. It's really difficult because who do you talk to? You know, who do you talk to? Right. And then there are all the stories you tell yourself about yourself. You're you're repeating the words that your parents tell you that you're not good enough. Right. Or whatever it is that your survival strategies start to believe, right? For, For better or for worse, those mechanisms become your truths. And I understand that part about attracting the wrong people. I totally understand that because what we don't know until we know it is that we're looking over there. We're looking over there with fractured selves. We're looking over there to become whole without ever knowing that we are already whole. Yeah, we're waiting for someone else to rescue us and make yeah. us whole. We don't know yeah. because we're we're longing for that we're longing for that relationship that we're supposed to have with the parental unit. Right. And we're looking for that in others because we've never had that. Yes. And so if we have a fucked up vision of love, then we fuck up love. Don't we ever. (laughs) Yeah, right. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's so hard because taking accountability is the most difficult thing as a human being when you start your process and healing and self-love. Taking accountability and understanding that, you know, it is our fault to a certain degree because we're allowing people to enter our space and to treat us this way. But then it's so weird because of all of the crap that's been there from the childhood trauma that's so buried deep below the surface. It's like, and and I always preface it by saying, look, guys, I don't blame my parents. I'm not sitting around going, woe is me, woe is me, not in that victim mentality. What I'm saying is, yes, what they did and didn't do, even the bad stuff that was happening back then with the molestation and the shut up, you know, your voice doesn't matter. That's the most difficult thing in the world is never to have your voice matter. And, you know, and and I'll tell you, when I was 17, this is what really scared me. Um, I was raped when I was 17. So when I was raped, I went home and I told them, my mother sat on the couch, did nothing. My father, did you drink any alcohol? I said, well, I had a sip of beer and apparently there was something in it. He goes, well, then you deserved it. And at this time, I didn't even know my father had molested me. I had no idea. And like I said, I have no recall how long it went on. It started at six and it went till at least eight, could be longer. But those are the memories that my Mm. brain has allowed me to access. But, you know, being 17 and I had just broken up with my boyfriend, which is my son's father. And... um I had been out at a Christmas party with friends and uh, I accepted an open cup, a solo cup of beer. And it was Christmas party at an apartment complex. I was thinking nothing of it. I was trying to get out of this mood of being depressed because 
Well, little did I know I was already pregnant, so hormones were kicking in, and I was just depressed because the boyfriend I had for almost three years, we broke up, and I was failing classes in school because of that, and this nice, good-looking guy hands me this open container with beer in it. I take one sip, and I don't remember shit after that Mm. until I wake up, and he's on top of me, raping me, and I managed to fight my way loose and run downstairs at this complex just bleeding from scraping my feet up and my legs up and just running down naked, leaving most of my clothes behind, not knowing what's going on. And then walking into the house thinking Mm. that my protectors were going to do something, but they did nothing. And, you know, my voice was silenced for so many years because of that. I just felt like, well, I guess I'm a piece of shit, you know, I, I deserved it. And I had to contemplate whether or not to have the baby because I was going to join the military and get the hell out of here and, and leave Arizona and leave this family behind. But they told me that's how I found out I was pregnant. So here I'm sitting up on a mountainside thinking about, well, what the hell do I do with myself? I'm pregnant. I can't join the military right now. I can't do this. I can't do that. Can't even tell my parents I'm pregnant. I just got raped. So what the fuck, you know? And mm-hmm. the next thing I know I'm going to go get an abortion because I'm not going to have the child. And I'm sorry if somebody out there has a different belief. But in my mind at that time, I was not going to bring up a child who was a product of rape just because I could not do that for myself. I did not want the child to pay the price for that. But here's the thing. When I went in to do that, they told me I was four and a half months pregnant. So I could not have an abortion the normal way. It would have to be a partial term. And that really kind of set the tone for changing things for me, even at the age of 17. I mean, I had to grow up so much faster than any children should have to. But at that point, you know, I had already spent several years hanging around older people in my circle outside of school that my brain was a little farther advanced. And I said to myself, well, I didn't even think about all the shit I'd have to go through as a single parent at that point. But I was like, well, you know what? This child was a product of not rape. It was a product of what I thought was love. Mm -hmm. But even though it was a skewed version of love, because at that point, I didn't even know what love was. But since it was the boyfriend's child versus the rapist child, Mm -hmm. I made that decision to keep that child. And it was really interesting because without that child, like I said, I don't believe I would be here and I would not be the strong person that I am because it Mm -hmm. forced me to step up. I had to compartmentalize a lot of stuff. And, you know, I chose an industry which wasn't easy. And then I had to find other jobs that most women would never work because I needed money to pay the bills. The radio industry didn't pay enough. There was no insurance. And, you know, the TV station didn't pay enough. Well, at that point, I wasn't there, but I had to go do things. I did landscaping. I climbed palm trees and trimmed palm fronds, you know, like 30 feet up in the air because, you know, I didn't give a shit. I was 20, 21 years old. I had to do what I had to do. I worked in a steel foundry. I did things. I, I put the purpose in motion that, you know, I when my ex and I split up and I got nothing, no help from anybody, no child support, nothing from the state. I was on my own. So I set out and I started doing stuff. And I said, well, what can I do? And I had to go for jobs that could pay a little bit more or like I said, would offer insurance. And then I could have the sideline job, which would be the radio gig. And then eventually working for PBS, which could pay my bills and give me medical insurance. But I still had to have some sort of supplemental income. So I've always been used to working more than just one job in order to survive because that's what you do. And you don't think, don't think about it. You just do what you have to do to get through 
through it. But then again, then then all the shit starts coming down on you because you want a personal life. You want to try to find somebody to be with. But again, you're attracting the wrong people because you haven't learned the lessons yet. You're repeating the same mistakes because you're not healed. And you don't even realize just how deep the trauma goes until you really start peeling those layers back. And I think I was what? I'm now 55. So you're talking just in the last five years, mm-hmm. doing more trauma work and understanding that. And boy, when you find out these things about your life that have been underneath that dark cloud, it really wakes you up. And I've seen so many people and even myself have physical manifestations of illnesses and sickness. Um, with me, it was a heavy cough and I'm not a smoker. I'm not asthmatic, but for several years, I had a heavy cough being in the presence of toxic people. And I didn't understand what that was. But, you know, I'm so used to my voice being silenced by the two people that were charged to care for me since the day I was brought into this earth that subconsciously my voice was stifled. And mm-hmm. I've learned that it has to do with the throat chakra. You know, if you're not able to have free speech and to voice what's going on within you and around you and to you, it's constricting your vocal cords. And for someone like me who works strictly with voice, it was damaging to me because I always would have laryngitis and never understood it. And then the cough surface. But the more you're able to speak out about those traumas, the more you're able to clear out that cachet, so to speak, of everything that's been just lurking below the surface, the more you're able to get your voice back and the less physical ailments you have. I mean, the number one killer is cancer. And where does that come from? That comes from stress. So if you're stressing a lot, you can kick up those things in your body to create a physical illness. And for me, it was just being able to not have the voice. And the more and more I I do the work, the more easy it is for me to actually speak it because I we let it hold us prisoner. We, you know, so many people medicate it by doing things that are not healthy. Like, you know, I have friends that are alcoholics because of their childhood trauma. They they have a hard time facing and they're in their 50s, you know, their mid-50s, and they're having trouble facing and admitting that a parent touched them inappropriately. And this is 2023, guys. I mean, speak it. Don't don't let it hold you prisoner. You've got to be able to speak it out loud because in the end, it doesn't really matter what they've done to you because we all know what they've done. We all know what they've done. They can deny it all they want, but that's our story. They can't take that away from us and they will try. They will tell us that we're full of shit. My mother's even done it recently. Oh, your father never did that to you. Uh, Yes, he did. That's my story. And you're not taking that away from me. I've had to own that part of my story. And I'll be damned if you're going to sit there and deny that it ever existed because you know the truth and you're just not willing to face up to it that you fed your daughter to the lion and you sat back and watched it happen because that meant that you didn't have to have sex with somebody you didn't want to anymore. But yet you were still able to keep the roof over your head and be taken care of financially. And just to find these things out in the last year has been mind blowing to me because you think you know the truth. You're thinking, okay, well, this there's something not quite right. And and I'm going to tell you guys out there, you know, if you're listening to this, when you feel something in your gut is not right, don't ignore that. Don't mm-hmm. ignore that. Uh, there's so many different ways to to break 
into that psyche to figure out what's happening. And, you know, writing for me has been a joy and a curse because I'm good at it. It's taken me a long time to admit that because most of us don't admit that. But the way that I've been able to help myself heal is by purging it because therapy didn't work for me. Mm. I Being in a room with someone who says, I know how you feel. It's like, well, how do you know how I feel if you've never been there? You've never experienced mm. this. Yeah. And for me, being able to purge that shit on paper, to purge it on the internet, to get it out, it's the most healing and cathartic thing for me. And the other thing that worked was hypnotherapy because mm. being able to go under hypnosis and have someone else guide you into that place where your brain is stuck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that eight-year-old me, I had no idea. I had such a, a, a big, huge rock, hard rock in my shoulder blade for the last, every time I get in my mother's presence, it's just horrible. And mm. I could never understand it. But then to see what happened when I was eight to confront that, the day that I found that out, that that big, huge physical manifestation of lump in my shoulder was gone. I found out the truth that she knew. And it made perfect sense why there's been such a struggle to build a bond with her for the last 45 years You know, ever since I was a kid, there's just no bond. Even in conversation with her recently, when we had it out after one of her physical attacks against me, she said, but I did love you when you were a little girl. I used to dress you up and take you to your grandparents' house. Um, Yeah, the last time that was, I was three years old. We moved. We moved across the country. So I didn't grow up with grandparents. They were in Florida and we were in Arizona. So to hear that come out of her mouth, it's like, well, I used to love you when you were a little girl. Okay, well, you just admitted that that you don't love me. I mean, in, in to hear that now, after all of this shit that I've gone through in life, it doesn't even bother me. It's like, oh, there's the truth. And yeah. she she even said recently to try to stop me from going to visit my son and my grandkids. She said, I wish I'd never had you and I wish I had aborted you. So there it is. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if they are angry or not. A lot of times the truth comes out when there's anger. Mm-hmm. And to hear those words freed me of the burden that I have attached to myself since I was a child. The burden I've kept for so many years was that that whole thing that I always wanted my mom to love me. I always wanted what everyone else had. Mm-hmm. I always wanted that amazing mom that just had this mother-daughter bond that, you know, you grow up together, you hang out together. I don't remember her teaching me anything. I don't remember anything from my childhood. I have not had a mother for as long as I can remember And it's just, it's sad. It's really sad when you think about it, because not only did she give one away, but she gave a second one away. And that second one has been the only one that's been there out of all of her children trying to do things to help her in life. And, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And she loves living in her victim mentality. And I... I can't do that. And she wants me to sit and wallow in it with her and be a victim. And I'm, I'm like, fuck you, you know? Okay. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend the next 40 years of my life being just like you and being mm-hmm. miserable and unhappy. I'm going to yeah. go search for happiness because happiness is an inside job. I'm going to do what makes me happy. And I can't stay stuck there. It's just no one should have to stay stuck in those situations. You know, that's 
And to be forced to be the caregiver to, to two people who don't give a shit about you, that's that's a hard place to be in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really a hard place to be in. And I don't know how I, I don't know how I managed to do it. I, I don't yeah. know. You know, I don't know. And there's some level of forgiveness that I've had. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. But I'm also at the point now where the boundary is set and things are going to change. They I have understand to. that. Yeah, I hear you. I've heard the road of difficult parents, molestation, rape, bad choices. I say that without judgment. I'm using your words. I'm good with that. At what point did you say to yourself, or did you, I've got to dig in. I've got to get closer to what this is within me. Some people might call it, I was so tired of my own bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's very recent. But what made that happen? Well, I think the process started eight years ago, um, actually this month, just a little under a month ago, eight years. And um, it was from being in yet another toxic, Mm. horrible marriage. And just the realization, um, it was weird. It was actually longer than that, 12 years ago, where we had an argument and I can't remember what the argument was. I was so exhausted that I passed out and hit the floor. Mm. When I came to, he was sitting in a chair right next to me doing stuff on his phone. So I asked him, how long had I been passed out? He goes, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 minutes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, why did you not try to wake me up or call 911 or or figure out what's going on with me? Oh, I don't know. And it was kind of like a really weird wake up call. And, you know, we had owned a business and all this other stuff together. And I sat here and I thought about that. I'm going, this person who claims to love me that I have built this empire with uh, just basically left me on the floor for almost 30 minutes. I could have died. I don't know what Mm -hmm. the hell was going on. Why did I pass out? I could have hit my head and gotten a concussion. I mean, everything runs the gamut through your head. And it's like, I'll tell you exactly at that moment, it's like, well, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah. Why am I repeating the same crap that I did 20 years ago that I got out of and thought I changed? I thought I was not going to draw abusive partners to me. And this guy was more verbally abusive every day, gaslighting and shit. Oh my God, the stuff he used to say to me. And I I just, you know, I was so beat up by his words. I never understood it until that very day. It was a huge wake up call. So I spent the next four years making my escape plan. Mm. And I and I double and triple because the company was making good money. So I double and triple and pay off all of the the existential bills you know, stuff that, you know, like the car and the dental work, everything, the credit cards, everything that we were personally responsible for. I worked really hard to make sure that things were getting paid off at a quick rate. And after four years, I got completely 100% debt-free except for the mortgage on the house. All of the existential stuff outside of the business was 100% paid for. And that's when I started making the plan to get out. And he changed. His behavior changed. He was nice again, and I fell for it. But then six months after that, he did some illegal stuff with our company. And uh, it came back. And I'm 51% owner, so I had to do something. Mm. And I, it was like, I don't want to use the word blackmail, but it kind of was like that. I just said, well, this is how it's going to go down. Um, we're going to get a divorce. The house is going to be sold. The business is going to be shut down. Um, I'm going to give you some money to go start a new business, but you know, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to make sure that the house gets sold first because I own the house. I sold my dream house to buy this house when we were together. I didn't want to do that, but it was a big mess with my whole family. 
So he never had money invested in the house. It was me. And we live in a community property estate, Arizona here. So I decided that I'm going to take the upper hand to this. And you took everything from my life after my husband died. I married you three years after that and or five years after that, and I got screwed. So here's how I, I just, I decided I wasn't going to be that man's victim. I wasn't going to let another person take me down a negative way. And I stood my ground. I found my strength and, you know, I'm like, all right, well, you know, this is it. And I said, if if you want to argue this point with me, you you get to walk away with a little bit of money in your pocket to go start your life over. But if you try to give me any grief, I'm going to call the tax guys and let them know what you just did. And I'm also going to call what we call the ROC, the Register of Contractors, because you did illegal business under the table. And I have all the paperwork because I made him give me all the paperwork. So I kept copies. So I basically just said, okay, um, no, this isn't going to happen your way. It's going to happen my way. Otherwise, you're going to go to jail for what you did. And I held it over his head to get my divorce. And then, you know, I was able to get that point of freedom back. But then my mother, again, going back to childhood trauma and the trauma bonds that we have, I desperately wanted to try this one more time. As a 48-year-old, she's like, why don't you come move in with us? And of course, I had bought them this place in a retirement park. So I actually owned what they were living in. And it was a transition for me. And again, stupid me thinking, oh, I can I can do this again. Maybe she'll be my mom now. This time she'll be different. This time she'll be different. And you know, the first couple of years she got mad because I wouldn't, I was trying to figure out how to find a job and go back to work because I was stuck at home. And that's not me. I'm I'm a person who likes to be out working and doing things. And two and a half years after in there, I got a job where I'm working now here at the studio. And she was angry because mm-hmm. I would stay in, in the victim mentality with her while he was home. But then, you know, everything changed. He went to a nursing home and then it was her and I in the house. And then she got angry at me because I wouldn't stay home. And and it just it just multiplied and multiplied. So I found myself back in yet another toxic situation. And I would come home and I would shut my door and treat my room like a studio apartment to avoid being in her negative air, or I would be at work all the time. I would force myself to, and I love my job. Thank God I, this is my sanctuary, but you know, I would just literally go sit at the studio, even if I wasn't doing anything, just to get the hell away from her. And just things started happening. And I had situations going on in my personal life where the boundaries were being crossed both at home and with a certain friendship. And for once I said, no. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, I can't do this anymore. No. And I had a friend pointed out to me that this was the first time that I started exhibiting signs of loving myself. Uh-huh. Now you're talking four years ago. So 51, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm looking at it going, well, they always talk about the midlife crisis, the the, the middle ages where we start the brain starts letting us see more of where things have been, the processes. And, and you know, some people go out and buy sports cars. Uh, not me. I uh, start writing more about that kind of stuff. I start doing a little bit of, uh, like I said, hypnotherapy and understanding the the blockages in the brain. And, and it just, it started just like this domino effect. It was like, wow, you know, this is what it's like to love yourself. This is what it's like to start that cathartic process of healing and understand that, you know what? I may have been told I wasn't worthy, but damn it, I am worthy. Mm -hmm. And it's about time I start treating myself better 
than allowing everybody to take pieces of me. And it's it's so strange because I had I had a, a friend of mine I've known for 30 years and nothing had ever happened between us, but I kind of let something happen, went back to that friends with benefits. Can Robin still do this? And when I when I left that house, I was so upset at myself because I'm like, okay, well, first thing I said, the sex sucked. I'm sorry. He thinks it was good, but I still think the sex sucked. And it's because I'm coming from a place of why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't work for the 50-year-old me. It might work for the 25-year-old me because that's what was going on in my life back then. But it, it changed the trajectory of everything for me. It was like, why do you have to give yourself away to feel like you're loved? And that was a big question for me. I mean, with everything that had just transpired with these three situations between my parents, this other friend, and then the other friend who I had sex with. I mean, it just really blew my mind. It's like, why am I going down this road right now where what used to work and was comfortable no longer works and isn't comfortable? Mm -hmm. And it, it forced me to really take a look at it. And that's when I said, oh, wow, okay, I understand. I'm beginning to set boundaries. I'm beginning to say no without even having a reason why or even saying, well, I can't do this because it's just going to be no. Yeah. It is simple. No. And to be able to be free of so much of that childhood trauma and to understand it and understand why I have been the way I've been for a good portion of my life, it's it's made a world of difference. And it's, you know, no one ever told me I was worthy. I was always told I was a piece of shit. I was always told that I was the sacrificial lamb. Um, you know, I, I'm the child that that could have made a difference in her life, but she chose to to never give me that. And, you know, like I said earlier, my brother has a very skewed vision of the truth. Uh, he tends to think I was the apple of my father's eye. And I'm sorry, but if that means his, his father is diddling his little sister, makes me the apple of his father's eye, then he's got a skewed vision of it himself. And, you know, I'm I'm grateful that I don't hold anything back anymore because the more I'm able to speak about these things, the less unhealthy I am. This is the best physical condition I have ever been in. The only, I don't, I've never taken any type of prescription medication for any type of, you know, like depression or anything. And, and I don't fault anybody that does. I know that sometimes we need that extra help. Um, I just never got to that point. I, I do everything pretty much natural to take care of my health, but this physically, this is the best I've ever felt in my entire life because I don't have anything holding me back emotionally anymore. Yeah. And to have all of those emotions trapped below the surface for so long to feel like you're unworthy. I mean, that is like, if you look at everybody who has stuff going on in their life, the bottom line is they have a hard time looking in the mirror and telling themselves that they love themselves or that they're even worthy of being loved by others because we were told we weren't. And and that's, that's the hard part as a parent. You don't, you don't ever verbalize that. You don't ever verbalize that to a child. You don't ever say that. And when I had that argument with my mother, not even a month ago, when she said that to me, I I actually started getting smart. I actually started running a recorder and capturing these things she would spout out at me. And I played a 28 second clip for her 
of that morning where she said she wished she never had me. She wished she had aborted me. And of course, she tried to excuse it away. Well, I was angry. And I said, yeah, but when people are angry, that's when they tell the truth. I said, you should never, I don't care how old your child is. I don't care if they're on their deathbed and you're standing there before them. You should never tell that to your child ever because she has no idea what's about to happen. Right. I'm taking my life back 100%. And when that day comes, she's going to know what it's like to be aborted by the only daughter that actually stood up and did anything for her. In the intro to the Trauma Hiders Club, I say, you feel unworthy, unwanted, and unlovable. And I didn't make that up. I'm speaking from my own experience. Mm-hmm. So I I completely get that. When I was, um, I don't know, I think I was like seven. I was old enough to do math. And my mom was on the phone. I don't know who she was talking to, but one of the things that she said was, oh, that's so great that your kids are going to be two grades apart. That's what I really wanted. And I thought, (laughs) and I remember, I remember exactly where I was sitting at the table and I thought, wait a minute, my brother and I are, I'm just one grade behind him. And so the story I told myself was that I was unwanted and, uh, I checked in with her on that when she hung up the phone. I remember she was on an avocado green phone in our Harvest Gold and Orange kitchen, maybe had some avocado green accents. And I said, hey, wait a minute. Here's what just went down. I did the math. Something's not right here. And she said, well, sometimes sometimes babies are a surprise. Uh-oh. And so I've had that conversation with other people and, the, and their parents have said things like the best surprise ever. Um, I didn't hear that. But uh, the story I did stick with was that the surprise was not a yay surprise. It was a fuck. Here, here I go again. What I'd love to know is with your insights into who you are and power that you have, I don't want to say stepped into because I actually hate that expression. <laughs> right. The power that you have uncovered right? Because it was always there. You didn't have to step into it. The power that you have uncovered. Tell us how you are the little girl who always wanted to help other people and be a teacher. How is that? How does that look today? If you can tell us like very succinctly, I do this. I help this way. Writing. I I do writing because since I was a teenager from that very moment sitting on the mountain trying to decide what to do with this baby in my stomach, that I was just raped, that this was possibly a child of that incident. I sat on a rock on a mountainside. It was a little cloudy out and the little there's a little sparrow that jumped off the rock and actually came over to me and got on my knee and inspired me to take that tablet out and start writing. Mm-hmm. And just being able to let that piece of paper speak for me mm-hmm. gave me the greatest gift in the world because, again, not being able to be heard, um, going to the rape counselor at this place and and her telling me, I know what you're going through. I, mm-hmm. I know how you feel. And I, I point blank asked her, have you ever been raped? She goes, no. And I said, well, are you in my heart or my head? She goes, of right. course not. And I said, well, how the fuck do you even know what I'm going through? Mm-hmm. Go out there and get raped. Then we have something to talk about. Mm. And, you know, for me to verbalize that at a young age and then not being able to hear my, 
my father say, well, let's call the police. Let's go after this guy. And not to have my mother come put her arms around me and say, I'm so sorry, honey, this shouldn't have happened to you. I'm here. It's okay. Writing has been the greatest gift I've ever had because mm-hmm. from a very young age, it's the only way that I can pour out what's going on. And my voice being silenced for so long, even through my adult years, my parents never acknowledging it. My brother saying that I was never raped. It was one of his high school friends that did it. I didn't know that at the time, but he's told people in the last 20 years that that is is a bullshit story that I wasn't raped. You know, and this is supposed to be my big brother telling, telling our, my mother's first daughter who we found recently telling her, Oh yeah, that story is a lie. She was not raped. That's my fucking story. So, you know, the idea that there's so many different modalities for people, but writing has always been my saving grace because nobody can tell me what I can and can't write about. And, you know, now that I do a show myself where I call it Get Real with Robin, I express things in a way that it blows people's mind because I am not afraid to say it. And that's, again, what if we if we look at the way Alcoholics Anonymous works or even NA, Narcotics Anonymous, what is the first thing they have you do when you step up to the podium in front of everybody at the meeting? Hi, my name is such and such. I'm an alcoholic uh-huh. or I'm a, I'm a drug addict or whatever, you know, I'm sure some groups are for sexual abuse. I'm, I'm a victim of sexual abuse. The first thing you do is you speak it into existence. Right. You verbalize it because the less you let it hold you prisoner and the more that you use your voice to verbalize it. Me too is a perfect example. Look how Hollywood has has been taken down the very dark road of what we've seen happen through the generations. All that silence, all of that terrible stuff that's happened, but you get one person talking and another person talking. The more you use your voice, the more you verbalize it. Me, it's verbalizing words. It's putting words down on paper. And I shoot straight from the hip. I don't allow anybody to silence me. Um, I do use power words like fuck, because that to me is what gave me strength going through abusive situations. I take back my power. I stand in my power. And now I don't allow anyone to take that power away from me Mm -hmm. because for so many years, the two most important people in a child's life rendered me powerless in every way possible. And the written word has been my biggest strength. And again, like we're having this conversation, the more that I talk openly to people about this, it not only is cathartic for me in that, but in the teaching of itself, we go through these things. We're supposed to be here to live, love, learn, and teach. We're not supposed to live these miserable fucking lives for the rest of our lives. And we can't allow what's happened to us to make us prisoners for the rest of our life because that's not what this life is. And you don't, owe anybody anything when it comes to doing your own therapy and your own way of finding your way. And, you know, I've often had people say stuff to me like, well, shouldn't you confront them and get this out? Well, half the time you can't confront them to get it out because honestly, they don't give a shit about what you have to say. If they really cared about you, they wouldn't have done what they did to you in the beginning. And that's not what this is. That's not what any of this is about anyway. It's, right. This is not about confrontation. This, right. Right. Who we yeah. are and and how we are moving forward in the world is completely an inside game. 
the expression right. of all of that comes outside and opens the door for other people and po- quite possibly saves a life that way. It but, does. It does. Yeah. The, you know. Yeah. And so there, there's your show, mm-hmm. Get Real with Robin. Yeah. Um, and you've written some books. Yeah, I've written two. I'm actually working on number three right now, which uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Uh, okay. the, fir- the first two are Victim No More. The The next one is Soul Stirrings. And uh, the third one that's in the process of being worked on right now is Black Sheep Confessions, which centers around the subject that we were just talking about, childhood yeah. trauma, telling the truth, exposing the truth, understanding that that truth doesn't have to own us anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I've been blogging a lot of it out on my, all of my different social media. And, you know, I tag it black sheep confessions because this is stuff that again, you know, was swept under the rug 50 or a hundred years ago, but this is, this is the future here. We're in 2023. Why are we still shoving this shit under the rug? You know, right. you, sh- you shouldn't have to do that. And we we talk about breaking cycles. We talk about not allowing the past to control the future. And, you know, I'm really proud of myself and it takes a lot for me to say that, but I see now that I did break the cycle mm-hmm. because my son is amazing. He's not perfect. I will never say my son is perfect. He's perfectly imperfect. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. He didn't suffer what I did. Yeah. And he has good childhood memories. And I see that in my grandchildren. I see how my grandchildren talk to each other, how they talk to me. I have a nine-year-old granddaughter and a 10-year-old grandson. And they're sitting on the couch and I'm in the middle. And one of them will say, I love you. And the other one says, I love you back. Just out of nowhere. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit, I wish I had that with my brother. Right. You know, I, I'm so envious. Yeah, of yeah. people who have those tight-knit families. And I don't think they realize just how lucky they are because there's so many families out there that are so screwed up and so broken that they don't know how to bridge that gap and find that. So I'm, you know, I growing up, I saw a lot, a lot of my friends like that. And even the ones that were in the divorced families, they would complain and say, well, Robin, you're lucky your parents are still in the same house. And I'm like, you got more love than I did. Even though you're going back and forth between two houses, your parents don't fight. Your parents aren't, you know, they don't give it. They actually care. They pick you up and take you places. They do things with you. They make a difference in your life. Mine don't give a shit. They don't care. They just live and exist and ignore. That's why when people say that kids should grow up in a two-parent household versus one, I'm living proof that that's not true. And there's many others that are. Plus, I was a single mom to my son from the age of two and a half on. And that kid is one of the most well-adjusted men in the world, being 37 years old. And he tells me, you're my mad. You're my mom and dad. I'm more like a dad to him than I am a mom mm. because we do father-son stuff. Mm-hmm. Because really I didn't know nice. yeah, I didn't know how to be a mom. So I worked on cars with him. We went drag racing. We we hung out, you know, mom worked in the music industry, mom worked in radio. So we got to do things that a lot of kids don't get to see. And I made sure that he understood his level of importance in my life because I never wanted him to feel one ounce what I felt. I still, to this day, the the greatest thing in the world was the day my father died. Mm -hmm. I was so happy because then I could have him in a captive audience and get it out of my system Mm because he still tried to silence me as he was going into death. And I was waiting. And the minute he died, boy, was I able to unleash all that shit. And at that point, I didn't even know he had molested me. That was over two years ago. So I still was able to confront 
Because most people say you have to do this before they die. That's not true. Because remember, it works. Yeah, it's not about them. It's about you. And they can hear you, okay? When they're in heaven, they can still hear you. And if that, if it takes for them to die, for you to have it out with them after the fact, because you have a captive audience and they can't shut you up anymore, then you do what you have to do. And it's, it's, right. more, it's just about releasing all of that hidden trauma, all of that garbage, because while they're physically here, they really don't give a damn how you feel, what you think. And that's what, you know, trauma does to you at that whole trauma bond. You, you try and try and try. And it's like, what's the point? Sometimes you just have to say, I'm done. And you have to say enough is enough. And you have to walk away from it. Do you have a goal for when your black sheep confessions is coming out? Well, I'm hoping to have it done by the end of the year. Um, As as you know, I've told you off the air, there's some plans going on behind the scenes right now that have kind of interrupted the writing process. Yeah. I still blog things out. So I'm going to take a lot of those blogs and instrument them, you know, put them into the book, implement Perfect. them. As, yeah. And and it just started as therapy for me when after I had that revelation about my mother knowing and I started working on it. And I will be doing the photo shoot for the cover after I get moved into my new place. So I'm hoping that I can wrap it up and get it all done by the end of the year. That's my goal. Terrific. That's yeah. great. Well, we will have a link to all of your social and to your Amazon store where your books are. And so we'll include that hashtag of Black Sheep Confessions. I love it. Yeah, we have a lot here. Sometimes you have to be careful when you get a professional broadcaster on. They don't know when to (laughs) shut up. They just, and for me, I mean, the biggest thing that I want people out there to know is step into your power. You know, stop allowing others to control that power in you. We don't realize just how strong we are as human beings. Uh, We don't realize just how strong our power within us is. And we allow so many people to drain our life source because we so desperately want to be loved. But the key to this is you don't need that outside love. You need that love from you. You have to start stepping into that for yourself. And it's very easy to start the process And I know so many people get lost in the minutia of it and they don't understand how to start. But the biggest thing, at least I learned this and it was very difficult for me, step in front of the mirror and start with something as simple as telling yourself, I am love. I am loved. I love myself. I deserve better. I I mean, whatever you want to do, make it positive. Don't Talk negative about yourself because we have one mouth and two ears. So remember, everything you speak negatively out loud about yourself, you're hearing that in stereo. It affects you. Just remember all the crap you dealt with in your childhood, all the shit that those people told you that you weren't good enough. You need to change that. Mm -hmm. You need to start telling yourself that you are good enough because you really are. You deserve better. We're not meant to be these people that are miserable for the rest of our lives, we're not, we're not supposed to give away our power. And the more we allow them to control us by us giving away our power, the more miserable we're going to be. And I can honestly tell you just in the past three weeks, I have made leaps and bounds in changes. My whole life has changed because now I understand that no matter how hard I try as an adult child to make this relationship with my parent work, It's never going to change. The dynamic can never change, no matter how hard I've tried to make that work. And it's time for me to step away from it and to take back my life. 
And I, like I told you, you didn't, you don't even know the whole, the whole story, but three things happened within that amount of time of saying, I'm taking back my life. I'm taking back my power. I'm going to live in my power and I'm not going to allow that person to suck the life out of me anymore. And all of a sudden, a new place to live showed up, a new car showed up that I could drive back and forth to work that was more reasonable on gas because now I'll be moving 50 miles away from my work. But I don't, I don't want to give up my work. I love my work. And on top of it, here's the kicker. Within the last month, I've met one of the most amazing people. And now he's become a very important part of my life. So I am now seeing the rewards of me finally accepting that I am good enough, that I do deserve better. And this has nothing to do with ego, folks. This has everything to do with understanding that we're not meant to be miserable. We're not meant to be unhappy. And happiness starts with us. And if we're sitting around wallowing in it because of all this shit that we've been through, yeah, we're going to be miserable every day. Life is going to suck. But you know what? Take your shoes off. Go walk in the grass for a little while. Get in nature. Take a deep breath. Get away from the shit for a few minutes. Just allow yourself that space. Allow yourself that grace to understand that you do deserve better because, you know, for all the things I've been through, I shouldn't be here. I should be dead 10 times over, but yet I'm still standing. And I guarantee you the next 40 years of my life, I'm going to live the hell out of it. I'm going to enjoy being around the family that matters the most, my son, his wife, her family, and my grandkids. And I'm going to enjoy the new man in my life because I've not had this kind of love in my life before. I've never had the love of my family to this extent. I've never had the career even the career to this extent, everything has just fallen into place. But that's because I decided that I deserved better and that I was worthy. And everybody out there is worthy of everything good. And if only our parents had told us that we were worthy of everything good, that we were worthy of love, none of this shit would have ever been mm. the journey. The journey's been the tough part, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here for a while. And that's that's the bottom line is you have to start treating yourself better. Self-care, self-worth, self-love. It's all beginning with self and self is not selfish. It is mandatory so that you can live a better life and stop being a people pleaser. Say no. Don't give an excuse. Walk away from the negative energies. Don't even give it any energy. It's not worth it. Turn your back to it and walk away because you deserve so much better. And, you know, I'm I'm living proof of it. Right. I have to, I feel this burning call to call out that you were told to shut the fuck up and your existence as a grown ass woman who understands herself more and more is all about using your voice. And that, my friend, is a testament to the miracle that you are. I'm so glad you are here. I'm grateful that I have my voice and I guarantee you I will never lose it again. Well, thank you for being here in the Trauma Hiders Club. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, Discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.